Now, we are uh, we're heading into the summer. <clears throat> we just finished Haggai. It was a great time. I really enjoyed that book a lot. Um, in a few weeks, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be taking a vacation. And so after that, we're going to start up a couple of summer series. The first one is going to be the book of Ruth. I'm really excited about the book of Ruth. Um, when we looked at Haggai, it, it, it has this idea of uh, the kinsman redeemer that comes into play. And when we slide into the book of Ruth, it becomes into play even more forcefully. And it becomes a beautiful, beautiful story of love and grace. And uh, I'm very excited. I love some of these uh, books that we can look at and maybe we know a little bit about it, we know some about, and yet we can dig deeper and find out new things that impact that story and see a little more of the depth of the Word of God, even in stories oftentimes we know. And this is a story, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 1, and this is a story uh, about Hannah. And this is a uh, passage that many times is preached on Mother's Day. And I've always not been sure exactly uh, how to do that. I haven't ever done that. But I love this passage. Uh, it's, it's got some depth here that oftentimes we don't get. So I'm going to read to you 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 4 to 11. You can follow along on your, if you have your Bible, or if you have your, on your phone, or you can just listen. All right? Here we go. Whenever the day came for Elkanah, now Elkanah is the husband, to sacrifice, he would give portions of meat to his wife, Penina and to her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on a door by the lamppost of the Lord's temple. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will, look, will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and will not forget your servant but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor shall ever be used on his head. Now, we look at this story it has a, a, a lot in it, and it's, it's, very, very, it's a very cultural story, I should say that. It is bound up in a culture that we need to understand, and we're going to look at some of that because it's incredibly important as we look at this and interpret this and understand what God is doing in this story. Uh, you know how sometimes, I don't know if you've ever had this happen in your life, sometimes God works in a way that you don't understand. You, you get in a situation and things don't look right and you don't understand it, and somehow God works in a way that you, you never would have thought would happen. And we often say that, you know, you hear that phrase that people always say, the Lord works in mysterious ways, which sometimes is just kind of a way of getting out of anything, but he can turn good into bad. And so this is the heart of this story. What we just read is, is, is gonna be a big part of that, and then we'll look a little bit in the second chapter. But the first thing I want you to see, we're talking about Hannah, we're talking in 1 Samuel chapter one. I want you to see Hannah's pain we have a woman who is in pain, all right? So to understand the story, we have to grapple with why she's in pain. Why is she crying? So we have this man, Elkanah, who uh, has two wives, Panina, who is uh, bearing children, and Hannah, who is barren and cannot bear children. And Panina mocks Hannah for this. 
until she is weeping. She, she uh, deals with her in a very terrible way. It's interesting here. I get this sometimes when I talk to people, people who want to argue with me about the Bible, and, uh, and I don't mind arguing with people about, I don't like it to be a, a mean argument, but I don't mind discussing with people about the Bible. But one thing that comes up a lot of times is someone will say, hey, <clears throat> man, how can you believe this stuff? The Bible promotes pig- uh, pigamy. <laughs> is this going to be one of those days? The Bible supports polygamy. You see it all over the place, right? And, and I, you do see it all over the place. But what's very interesting is, Wherever you see it, it's terrible. It's terrible. There is a man named Robert Alter, and he probably is the foremost Hebrew scholar. He, he is still alive, I believe, in the world. He, and, and his specialty was Hebrew and, and ancient Aramaic and the Semitic languages. He knew many of them. But also his specialty was uh, ancient Hebrew storytelling. And he looks at these stories in the Bible, and he says, these are... These are ancient Hebrew stories. They're beautiful, beautiful stories. In fact, one time, and he's not a believer. He's not, he's not a man who, believes in, who, who is a follower of God. But, but one time he did an interview. I looked it up on, on the web. And he was talking to a guy, and he said, these stories are so beautiful, so powerful, so touching, so human, that it makes me think maybe there is a God. Just studying these stories, he says, And he is one of the foremost scholars. He has some incredibly brilliant stuff that he's written. And he says this, throughout the Bible, polygamy is never depicted in a positive light. Over and over again, it is seen as a disaster for families and especially for women. Therefore, anyone reading the Bible and thinking it supports polygamy simply hasn't learned how to read a text yet. All right? See, if you you wanna see illustrations of how polygamy is a terrible idea, Read your Bible. Read your Bible. And God puts it right out there for a reason. For a reason. Because he doesn't say you should do this. And here we see one of the foremost reasons for why polygamy is terrible, terrible for women. Right? And so if someone says that to you, you can tell them now. You don't know how to read a text yet. Tell them, you can tell them I said that. Um, unless they know me, don't tell them that. Okay, so why is Hannah weeping? Why is she struggling so much? We already have seen some of it, but here's where the context is key. Because in ancient cultures, fertility of women, everything depended on this. Why? Because more children meant more wealth for the family, more workers, more economic prosperity. Children could mean living or dying over the long term because you needed that help over the years. More children mean a greater chance of you living to an older age with some comfort because children took care of their parents in their old age. Because they had, I don't know if you knew this, there's no 401ks back then. Who'd have thunk, right? So if you had more children, it meant you had a greater chance of living to an older age comfortably and not just, you know, scrabbling and just trying to make ends meet and, and possibly dying. Old people were cared for by their children and since The infant mortality rate was so high, you needed to have lots of children to guarantee your future security. Now, that's on a personal family level. On a national level back then, more children were needed because economic prosperity works through the whole nation. You want to have that. Also, sometimes you go to war, 
And if there's more people to draw from for your army, you have a better chance of winning. So lots of children means you win. Oftentimes, few children mean you're very vulnerable. So everything hung on women having children. Therefore, understand this. A pregnant woman was celebrated in that culture. They were lifted up. They were honored because they are continuing the growth of a family, the continuing the growth of the nation, all right? So you gotta read this with this in mind. There was another scholar uh, I, I read, I forgot to write his na- name down. He said, barrenness in any Hebrew text is an effective metaphor for hopelessness, for hopelessness. Barrenness means there's no foreseeable future for your family, for yourself, or for your nation. So keep that in mind as we look at this text. This is the context. It's not necessarily, I mean, you can understand where it comes from. It's not like it's a right, we're not talking right or wrong here in that sense, but what we're talking about is just, this is the natural consequence of living in that kind of a culture, in that kind of a context, in that kind of a world. So keep it in mind. So we see that Panina is, in a sense, the voice of the culture to Hannah. Think about that. Panina is saying, you can't bear children. You are nothing. You are hopeless. That's what she's saying to her. And that's the voice of that culture. So see why she's crying? She's crying because when in this context we understand, and it is the natural and normal desire to have children, and she is miserable. She is miserable. And it says, because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. All right? And so she, she kept doing that. And so uh, oh, that's uh, in here on verse 6. Yeah, because the Lord had closed her womb. The, the, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. Now, that's a pretty powerful sentence. In, in, in English, it doesn't come across quite as powerfully as it does in the Hebrew. The Hebrew word for irritate is it's a, it's a word. It's rahm. It's got this deep, strong rahm. And it means thunder. It means tumult. Things are going crazy. What is going on here? It's a a word they would use to describe the sound of a hurricane or, 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 or tornado. It's tremendous noise and tumult. This is what inside she is like. She's roaring in stress and agony. The word provoke is the word to lead a person to anger, but it also says, it also has this idea of leading a person to hopelessness, pushing a person towards hope. And this is what's going on here with Panina. She's looking at Hannah and she's saying, and it's literally saying, she is pushing her to this inner stress and, and, and roaring and almost in a sense screaming inside herself in pain and in agony. She was crying out in despair. It has this idea of you've reached the end of your wits. You just can't, it's like there's nothing left. Now, before any of us get on our high horse and stress how awful this is towards women, and it is awful, stop and think. In a collective culture, in a communal culture like that, family is the number one thing, the ultimate thing. And yes, women, because of that, can hate themselves and think they are worthless because they can't get pregnant and in, in a situation where family is the ultimate thing. 
Now, we live in an individualistic culture where individual advancement is the ultimate thing. So our culture doesn't stress necessarily those things, but our culture stresses other things just as strongly. And our culture can lead people to the same roaring in agony and pain. We just have different things. And unfortunately, I was talking about this with my wife the other day. Unfortunately, in many ways, the Christian culture or the church has bought into the world's idea of what success is. And we measure ourselves by how the world measures success, and it leads to this. Our culture, all that matters is individual achievement and looks and beauty and money. And so in our culture, you are less if you don't have these things. We think they are so backwards, but we have the same things going on that are unfair and oppressive and even at times illogical in our culture. I I didn't put it on the screen, I should have. There is no such thing as a non-oppressive culture. There's no such thing. Every culture in every part of the world has things that create hopelessness in people. It's the way it works. So there's no such thing as a non-oppressive culture. It is happening everywhere. Every culture comes to you. There is a panina in every culture that comes to you and says, you are hopeless. You are nothing unless you have these things. Every culture does that, and it wants to suck you into its meaning systems so that if you do what the culture says, then you're okay or you're saved, you know? Then you're panina. And you will feel arrogant and prone to taunt and mock. When you have it together in our culture, it can lead to this situation where you feel better than people. And you're prone to being arrogant. You're prone to taunting. You're prone to mocking. And if you fail to live up to the cultural norms or the cultural meanings or the things that our culture says is important, then you're Hannah and you're roaring on the inside. You're weeping and you're feeling like a failure. That is what culture does to everybody. You're either a taunter or you're a weeper. That's what happens. And sometimes it can happen in, in, in you get both sides. Sometimes you can be, you can taunt at one point and weep at the other. And so that's Hannah's pain. That's what we learn from her pain. That's what we see in her pain. Now, I want you to see the second point. This is Hannah's decision. This is uh, verses 7 and 8. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? So what is he saying to her? Think about this. This is something, it sounds, this sounds very noble, right? This sounds, I can be what you need. You can find your meaning in me. And it can sound very noble, but when you start to think about it, that's not a great idea. He's saying, let my love replace children. Don't you, love, don't you know I love you more than 10 sons? So build your life on my love. Don't listen to society. Don't let society dictate to you. Build your life around my love. But there's a problem there because now suddenly, who becomes the most important thing? Who becomes the God in her life, her husband? Now, 
sometimes I can be a pretty good husband and sometimes I can be a not so good husband. But even when I'm at my best husband, I am not, I do not want to be on a pedestal because I will fail. And I will let down and I will disappoint sometimes. Once every 10 years, maybe. I don't know. It's not very often. So I've been told. I, I don't know why I said that. Anyways, you, 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 can't, you put someone on a pedestal, they will fail. It's just they're human beings. You can't help it. You put everything into the love of a person, and it will disappoint you at some point. And so what happens? And here is a turning point. Once they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now, this is interesting. Uh, Robert Alter uh, really keys in on this because he says this, this phrase for standing up is, uh, is, it means more than just simply standing up. Literally, it means arose, but it's an idiom. It's a Hebrew idiom for making a decision. Uh, now, if we go, what? How does that way she stood up means making a decision? Okay, we use idioms all the time, right? One time I was doing something as a kid, and I told my mom, you know, this is great what I'm doing, and my mom said no, and she put her foot down, right? So what happened? Think, think if you were reading this a thousand years from now and you would just learn English, it wasn't your language. She, she put her foot down. What does that do? What does that do with a disobedient child? Okay, with my mom, there was a lot in that. There was a lot. It was more than her putting her foot down. It was, I stopped. It's just like, I can remember one time with my dad, we were in a, we were in a, a gathering and my dad was in, in, in the Air Force, and it was a, some important people that he worked with, and he, he really thought a lot of, and, uh, and I was, the kids would come in for, it was, it, was almost, it was almost, you know, so long, farewell. We'd come in for a little bit, and then we had to go to bed, and then the parents could really have fun, right? Yeah, that's how that works. So we, we, I was talking, and I was being silly. I was just being a stupid kid, you know, and I remember I, I was telling somebody, my dad just gave me the look. He just gave me the look, and I was like, Attention, you know, it, it was, that's an idiom for going over, grabbing me, shaking me, saying, stop that right now before I slap you in the next week. That is the look. See, that's an idiom. She arose, she stood up. It's an idiom for a decision has been made. It's an idiom for making up your mind and deciding to take uh, decisive action more than just standing. And, and Robert Alter writes here, he mentions here that she does not respond to Panina, and she does not respond to Elkanah. Base your identity on the society, that's Panina, and she does not, she's not going that way. Uh, that's kind of a sociological hope. Elkanah uh, presents kind of a physiological hope, or a psychological hope, maybe I should say. Build your life around my love. Build your life on romance. Get your identity by how much I love you. She doesn't answer that either. She does not want to be enslaved by what society says, and she doesn't want to be enslaved by her husband's love. She doesn't want to build her identity on his acceptance of her, so she goes to God. And I, we don't have it all. You can read the story if you want to. She goes to prayer. And in verse 11, as she's praying, she says, and she made a vow, saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. Now, at first, this looks like just an outright bargain with God, but I don't think it's quite that. I think there's something more here 
than that. And, and I, it's like she's saying, God, if you give me a son, I will trust you. I will, you give me that, I'll do this for you. That's kind of what it looks like, right? But I want you to see further down as we keep reading. She, she meets with a, a priest who overheard her and they have a little conversation. And then it says, then she went her way and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. Now, this is key to me because uh, this, and, and Robert Alter and a number of other uh, uh, people bring this out. Because if she had bargained, it would have been prayer. Then she gets pregnant and then she finds peace. That's how that works. But what's happening with her is she prays. Now she's at peace. And then she gets pregnant. It's like if you apply for a job, right? If you apply for a job, you have a job interview, let's say, and you go to the interview and they say, we'll get back with you in a few days, right? And so you're now, you've, you've applied for the job, but now you're nervous. Are they gonna come, especially if you wanted it? Are they gonna get back to me? I don't know, I don't know. And what happens? They call you, you got the job. <gasps> Peace, happiness, yay, right? But here's what she's doing. She's praying, let's say it's her job interview. She's praying, and then she has the interview, and then she says, I'm fine. Whether I get the job or not, I'm good. I'm content. This is the key. I am at peace. And then God said yes to the prayer, but she's looking at it like, God, listen, I have been freed. She's not bargaining in that sense. She had prayer. Then it says she was at peace and she gave it to God. Then she went her way and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshiped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Raman. Elkanah made love to his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son and she named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. So she did this, she found peace even before she was pregnant because she decided, I'm not going, I'm not going the culture's way and I'm not going what my husband is, is, is giving to me this way that is very easy to do for couples that really love each other. I'm not going either of those ways. I'm going God's way. So she's not necessarily, she's not like she's driving a bargain. She's getting rid of her absolute need to have children. She has peace whether she's pregnant or not. And this is kind of what she's actually doing. She's saying that if you give me a child, I'm going to give him away. And it will be just like before in the eyes of community. I will be a woman with no child. You know, women then, they would go oftentimes every day to the market, and the children would go, and the wives would talk, and the children would play together, and they'd buy. And then here would come Hannah, and she had no children, and everyone knew it. And I'm sure people were still nice to her, but there was this whole sense of, you're not quite one of us. And she now is, has a, is pregnant. She's going to have a child. And she says, I'm giving him to you. He's going to go into the priesthood. I'm going to take him to the temple and drop him off. And he will be raised there as a Levite priest for the, for the Lord. She's still going to go to the market by herself. And she says, but I'm good with it now. Child or no child, I'm good with it because... I will be there without a child either way. She is referencing with no, uh, um, she's referencing the Nazarite vow, and the Nazarite vow had some special conditions uh, for children who were 
given to the priesthood, a specific area of how that worked, and then they grow up in the temple. And so if you think about this from her point of view, why do women want children so badly in those days in terms of society? It helps society, but also just in terms of emotionally. You go with your child. You go to the, you go to the, to the market. You go to, you go to worship together. Your child is with you, and everyone sees and talks about their children. So she, she's not getting that. She won't go to the marketplace. She still won't fit in. It's a very patriarchal society. And one way to assure your place and your love of your husband is to give him a son. Now, Elkanah loves her anyways, but I'm sure it's always in the back of her mind. At some point, he's going to go, you just aren't going to give me a child. And so one way to assure your place in a, in a patriarchal society is you have someone for your husband to give his name to, someone to take over the family craft, the family business. Um, but, but what has she done? She's thrown that away. Because when you have a son, there's someone that gets the inheritance and then takes care of the parents. But Levites don't get an inheritance. Levites can't own property. They are priests to the Lord. She has given her child to God and will reap none of the benefits. She's given it all. She's given it all. She's given up raising a child. She's given up loving and experiencing life together with a child, seeing and participating in that growth physically, spiritually, and emotionally. She goes to God and she says, I'm not resting my heart in this culture. My, how society says I find meaning. I'm not resting my heart in my husband's love. I'm not resting my heart in the emotional gratification of raising a child. I'm resting my heart in you. I am putting my hope in you. She, she's saying, Lord, up until now, I've always wanted a child for me. Now I want a child for you. She went through rejection and pain, and she found peace. She found peace. This is an incredible offer from a woman. It's very interesting to me how throughout Scripture, God does marvelous and miraculous things through women. In a patriarchal society where men always step to the front, men always take control, men are always in charge, God keeps saying, move aside, guys. I'm going to use her. I'm going to do something amazing. Watch what I do. And she is saying, child or no child, I'm yours, and I will be content. Because even if you give me a child, I will have no child. It's kind of an interesting thought. You know, I thought about this. If she, if she had gotten pregnant early on, she might have turned out just like Panina. She might have fallen for her culture's view of what worth is. And now she's saying, Lord, it's safe to give me a child now. May I have one, please? And the Lord says, yes. Now, how does she get the strength to do that? How does she get the freedom to do that? Even today, when there is less pressure in this area, and this is, oh man, this is where I want to tread carefully because there are women who wish they could and don't have. There's plenty of... Uh, Men and women who would love to be married, and they aren't. There's plenty of people with big holes in their lives, just like Hannah had. So this is why this is important for us. 
This isn't some, just some exercise in understanding culture and going, oh, that's just so interesting, Bob, how all that kind of works that way. Wow, no, it's because it, it affects us. This is important. How does she find peace? We need that peace. How does she find the freedom to do that? How do we get that same kind of freedom? And this, this is where we bring in the third point. We had Hannah's pain. We had Hannah's decision. Now we have Hannah's praise. And this reveals a lot as you read, and, and especially in 1 Samuel chapter 2, I'd encourage you to read it because she writes an incredible song of praise to God that is, uh, it's, it's amazing. It is incredibly deep theologically. And I want you to see, she has discerned that there is a pattern and she has discerned that there is a person. And, and what do I mean by that? Well, she sees that there is a pattern to God's salvation. Look at this. This is just a little part of 2 Samuel 2. It says, the bows of the warriors are broken, but those who, have, who, are, those who, stumble, who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry hunger no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. What is the pattern here? The pattern is God works through the weak, not the strong. You see that, and you see this over and over, and you, and you see it in other parts of Scripture. This is the kind of God we serve. He works, he works powerfully through the weakest people. And she discerns that. She picks that up, and she puts this into her song. I see what you're doing, God. I see what you're doing. You do this in an amazing way. And so... She sees that pattern. Uh, one, it says, one line, it says, he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and lets them inherit a throne of honor. God works through weakness. In, in Isaiah 54, it says, Sing, O barren woman, who, you who never bore a child, burst into song. Shout for joy, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. And he goes on and on in, uh, in Isaiah 54 about this. He says, don't be afraid, you will not suffer shame. Don't fear disgrace, you will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood for your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. This is who's on your side. And so we see this. And it's interesting, if you just, just a quick run through the Old Testament. You just see this over and over and over with Isaac. Remember with Abraham and Sarah. And what happened? God said, you're going to have a child. And Sarah, what does it say? She's in the tent. God's outside. I don't know how this works. God's outside with, uh, with Abraham. She's in the tent. She's overhearing it because it's just a tent, right? And, she, and God says, you are going to have a son in your old age. And she's like, Pah! nope. And so Abraham calls her out and God says to her, why did you laugh? And it's just, it's, this is so, you know, I didn't laugh. She said, and God's like, I'm God. <laughs> Plus it's just a tent. He says, you did too laugh. Now here's the ultimate laugh on you. You're going to have a son and you're going to name him Israel. Isaac, he who laughs is what his name means. The laugh is what his name means. So Isaac, Samson, what happened? God intervened in the life of a woman, and a great warrior was born. Samuel here, 
John the Baptist, what happened? In their old age, God said, bam, I'm gonna work through this woman, Elizabeth. He works in powerful ways through these women. Over and over and over, when the community is in trouble and needs a leader, the people cry out to God, and he keeps choosing these, not a beautiful person, not a fertile person, not a strong person, not a rich, he keeps choosing the weakest ones. And he goes to a woman, the least of these, barren and excluded. And miraculously, he opens her womb and out comes someone who accomplishes God's purposes. That's, that's the pattern. That's the pattern of God. Hannah sees it. God works through the marginalized. He works through the weak and the excluded, not the insider. He works through the outsider, not the strong. He works through the weak. That's why, you know, at one point in the Old Testament, it says, let not the strong man boast in his strength. Why? Because you're in a poor position as a strong person. You tend to rely on it. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that you know and understand God. You know me. That's what you boast in. That is good boasting. I am a child of the king of the universe. I can boast in that. Right? I'm not that strong. I'm not that wise. I'm not that rich. But that's okay. That's why it's so hard sometimes for people who are rich, people who are very strong, people who are very wise, to come to God. Because they trust it. So she sees this pattern, but she also sees a person. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. That word anointed means Messiah, the anointed one. The anointed king, the chosen king, the one who comes to deliver and to rescue. Now, uh, most, a lot of commentators, not, I, a lot of commentators say she's looking at David because her son Samuel is going to anoint David king. But it's interesting because I think she's, I think also God is using this prophetically of Jesus. And, and I'm not just I'm me thinking that. It's the, the number of people that bring that. She's looking beyond David. Why? Because centuries later, there's another young girl who's pregnant and she's pregnant through the intervention of God. She's not married yet. She's an outcast in a culture in a small town. And she also sang a song. It's more famous than Hannah's song. It's called the Magnificat. It's sung by Mary. But Mary borrows from Hannah in her song. You will see parts of it. Listen to this. This is part of the Magnificat. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, and has, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and has sent the rich away empty. Robert Alto says this is almost a quote of Hannah's song. Mary goes, Hannah got it. I'm getting it. God works through the poor. He works through the humble. He works through the weak. He works through the insignificant. And also, there's a person a special person, and Mary is like, he's in me. This is who all this has been talking about. The Bible is telling us that Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of the pattern that Hannah experienced. It's the pattern of the whole Old Testament, and Jesus is the fulfillment of it. Unlike heroes, Jesus was marginalized. He was beaten. He was poor. He had no home. He won by losing. That's how God works. Salvation is by grace. It's not for people who think they're strong and got it together. It's for people who know they are not strong and know they don't have it together. It's not for people who are on the inside where the power is. It's for people who are spiritually bankrupt and know that their only hope is the grace of God. 
This is how Jesus did it. And he still does it that way. This is how it works in our day. Just like Hannah saw all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and chapter 2, it is still going on today. This is how he does it. This is why we see, and sometimes we'll say this, the Bible is one whole long story because it, it, it is a whole bunch of separate stories, but they flow and they all point. And Jesus becomes the point they, they are pointing to. God saw, I mean, God saw, he started at the very beginning, God saw this world was a mess and sin dominated mankind. So he comes to Abraham and he says, I'm gonna save the whole world. The whole world's gonna be blessed through your family. And that family grew and it grew and it grew into a nation. And all Israelite women knew this promise. We are a part of the, of the world being blessed somehow, in some way. They didn't understand it always. They didn't comprehend it always. But somehow, out of this community is gonna come the salvation of the world. And Hannah saw, this is the story. And she decided, I wanna be a part of it. I wanna be a part of what God is doing. I see the pattern of what he is doing. So she asked God for a son, not for her emotional well-being, not for her cultural status, not for her husband's love, but for the plan and purpose of God. She had connected, and I want to say this in the right way because I know this could cause, but in that culture, this was the women's job. She connected her work with the furthering of the kingdom of God. I'm going to have a child, and I'm going to give him back to God for the kingdom, for the kingdom. She saw the purpose of God in the world, and she decided to build her life on it. This is what's going on. And what happens? Samuel anoints David, the king who wrote most of the Psalms, the greatest king of Israel who ever lived, the most flawed king of Israel almost who ever lived at the same time, but also the greatest. And he started the line that led to Jesus Christ. We saw that in, in Haggai, how that line, how God worked in incredible ways to keep that line going, to keep his promises. Okay, so here we go. Kind of cool, kind of interesting. I love this kind of stuff. So what? So what, Bob? What does this mean to me? Well, let me give you a few ideas. Thanks for asking. First of all, it doesn't matter what you want to do in your life. How you make money, how you, whether you find love or not, whether you make art, whether you achieve something. All these things are good. But your culture comes to you and it tells you this is what you want. This is how you build your life which you should build your life on. Your culture tells you this is the stuff you should hope in. Your culture, culture tells you this is what you build your identity in. And that can be, will be a disaster in the long run. Ultimately, we have to find something greater than us, than myself, than you, than our life to base our life on. And this is what Jesus calls us to do. And this is what Hannah ultimately did. He says, Jesus is calling us. I want to have a relationship with you. I want to be your savior. I died for you because I'm going to give you something that will be worth living for your whole life. I want to give you something that will never let you down. I want to give you something 
that will give you purpose and meaning and identity for the rest of your life because you will be involved in something that is so much greater than you can imagine. So that's first. Second thing, this is the hard one. Your suffering is never meaningless. But you might never find out what the meaning is. And that's hard. And look at Hannah, the suffering of childlessness and the humiliation of Panina caused her to go to God rather than culture or husband. Otherwise, she wouldn't have dedicated her son to the Lord and his service and his kingdom. And he would not have become the leader that Israel needed. And he would not have dedicated David as king. And the ripples go on and on and on. Her decision has ramifications that go all the way into eternity. You know, it's like, do you think, do you think she thought, oh, I'm a poor barren woman, and if I give it all to God, then 3,000 years from now on Memorial Day in 2023, people will gather together and learn about me, and I'll be famous. She didn't think that. She didn't see the fruition She didn't see that. She lived. She obeyed. She gave her son. He became a great prophet. And she died. That's all she saw. If she saw that much, we don't even know. So you may never know what God is doing in the midst of your suffering. But God promises your suffering is never meaningless and worthless. It is worthful. That's not a word, but take it from me. Third thing is connect your work with the furthering of the kingdom of God. Connect your work with the furthering of the kingdom of God. This basically, in a sense, what she did, the most important thing I can do in my culture. And so this is what we need to do. We need to be like Hannah. There's a good catchphrase from now on. We can just say that occasionally in church. Be like Hannah. Be a person who says, it doesn't matter what I'm doing in life. I want to to further the kingdom of God. I understand that my suffering is going to bring about something greater than I can imagine, and I'm going to connect what I can do with the kingdom. So suddenly, your workplace is not just your workplace. Your workplace is where you meet people, where you can plant seeds for the kingdom of God. Your neighborhood is not just your neighborhood. Your neighborhood is a place where you can plant seeds for the kingdom of God. Your family, all of those things, we, we suddenly see if we, can, if we can do this, we can connect our life and everything we do with furthering the kingdom of God. We can be like Hannah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that we got to get together today, 3,000 years after this happened, and we can celebrate the life of a woman that you used in a mighty way. And thank you, God, we see that over and over in our Bible, how you worked in that way through women and caused incredible things to happen in the kingdom of God. Help us all, Lord, to strive to be found faithful. And help us, Lord, to begin to think of ways we can connect what we do in our life with the kingdom of God and impact people around us for good. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.